Do you know yourself? It's a question that's been asked in the centuries. Do you know yourself? Do you know yourself as well as you think you do? Let me ask you a question. Are you self-aware? I was looking at one study. It says that only about 10 to 15% of the population are self-aware people. That's pretty profound. If awareness is noticing something in this world and observing behaviors and patterns in others, then perhaps self-awareness may be noticing stuff about yourself, the conscious, knowledge of our character, desires and emotions and motives. I think it's funny how you discover how you really look when you see yourself on camera. And it's been terribly traumatic <laughs> during the pandemic for me to constantly see myself on Zoom. I don't know why they have that feature, why you have a video of yourself, and it's completely traumatizing to be on YouTube during the pandemic. Or about how you really sound when you hear yourself on a recording. Don't worry, I'm pretty self-aware that I do not have a face for television, nor a voice for radio. I'm well aware. Well, there are many moments when we catch ourselves, or perhaps more often than that, how often others catch it before we do. Like, the time we find ourselves with the zipper down. Or when you have a, a piece of spinach stuck right between your teeth, dangling there for everyone else to see and you don't know. Or when your own family tells you that you smell. By the way, those things have never happened to me. I think it's amusing when we see the lack of self-awareness in others. Right? I mean, isn't it easy for us to see how unaware people are when sometimes we're unaware ourselves? Did I ever tell you about the time I met Kevin Johnson, the former NBA basketball player, the former mayor of Sacramento? It was a couple of years ago in Oak Park, our neighboring city to the west, and I was there dining on soul food. And it just so happens that the restaurant is founded by Kevin Johnson and his wife. But no, I did not meet him there. After lunch, I walked back to my car, and no, I did not bump into him on my way back either. It was as I was pulling out my car from a parking spot and driving back that there he was crossing the street right in front of my car, and he said, hi. I in my car and he there on the street, he said hi. He raised his hand. And so in response, I raised my hand too, said hi back, to quickly realize that he was telling me to stop so that I would not run him over. <laughs> Being self-aware. 
Now, if you've been in psychology class or work in some field of psychology or sociology or communication, you may be aware of the Johari window method used to enhance an individual's perception on others. Now, this model suggests we have four areas of our identity. One, a public self that is known both to us and to those around us. A private self known only to us and not by others. There is the blind spot which others know about us that we are yet to know about ourselves. And there is the unknown self that is neither open to the public nor to us. It's fun to think, I think. It's fun to think about these things. How much do we really know about ourselves? It's fun to think about how to think about what we think about and how we think. This is also, I think, what separates us from, what, from other animal species. If you know the famous French philosopher Descartes, best known for his statements, he says, I think, therefore, I am. And I share all of this fun stuff to say God knows us as we truly are. Listen to the psalmist's words in Psalm 139. O oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts, those private thoughts, those thoughts that are known only to me from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways, even before a word is on my tongue. Behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. And if you get a chance, I would highly recommend reading through the rest of Psalm 139 because, again, God knows. And again, it seems to say in Psalm 139, and the psalmist knows it real well, that, that God knows all four quadrants of our life. He knows what we know. And he knows what others know about us. And he knows what, what we do not yet know about ourselves. We are in the second chapter of the book of Ephesians. We're slowly making our way through this wonderful letter of Paul to the church in Ephesus in a sermon series we're calling One in Christ. We learn in chapter 1 that God chose us in Christ from the foundation of the world And the good news is that he chose us not just despite the way we are, but in spite of the way we are. He chose us knowing us as we truly are. I remember a friend a few years ago telling me that his father-in-law told him when giving away his own daughter in marriage, no givebacks, no returns. God chose us, and he loves us in spite of the way we are. Now, the Bible in many ways is likened to a mirror. It's like seeing yourself and hearing yourself on television or on YouTube, for that matter. You see, the fundamental purpose of God's word to us is to give us a knowledge of him and I think a true knowledge of self. 
It's a real mirror, and when we look at ourselves properly in it, we see ourselves as God wants to see us. I'm sorry, God wants us to see ourselves. I believe that the purpose of God's revelation is for us to come to see God as He truly is and for us to become transformed, to become the people God wants us to be. But this is impossible until we come to understand ourselves and to see ourselves as we really are. Sometimes you don't come to realize how short you are until you're standing around a bunch of tall people. And I think it's the same with God's word. It's easy to see myself as a pretty good person when I compare myself with those around me. But it's more difficult to see myself the same way when I compare myself to the standard of God and God's holy word. You and I both know our own desires our own evaluation of self and our own ability to determine spiritual truth falters depending on all sorts of things. How I feel, what mood I'm in, what season of life I'm in, my peers at the time, all sorts of reasons, my own need to justify myself or my own need to defend myself or my own need to protect myself. And that's why all the more it needs to be the authority of Scripture, God's holy word, the authority of an unchanging word, the authority of what God has said, the one who created all things, the one who has the power to back up what he says. That's why it needs to be the authority of Scripture that determines spiritual truth. That's why it needs to be the spiritual authority of God's Word, an unchanging Word that needs to tell us, again, what we, how we view God and the way we view ourselves and not on any human authority, including my own. Because you and I know, I know, how carried away we get when we begin to evaluate ourselves and think of ourselves as better than we, than we should. That's why it needs to be the spiritual authority of God's Word. Listen to what Paul writes to this church in Ephesus that has ramifications for us living in a, in a time 2,000 years separated from this letter. Paul writes, And you were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You see, this is an absolute statement. He doesn't mean that we were merely in danger of death, but that it was a state of real and present death. Paul is not just speaking in metaphors. He is not just using a figure of speech. He's talking about death. He doesn't use metaphors like we do. I just thought of a few. 
You know, we use words like, you're killing it, or that will be the death of me, or he bit the dust, or I'm done for, or we're pulling the plug, and, 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 no, yet, and, and no, Paul is not using death as a metaphor, but speaking of a spiritual death, of a separation, an eternal separation from God. Then the first parts of chapter 2 are pretty damning. Ephesians chapter 2 makes us aware of our situation, our condition, our status prior to God's regenerating grace, and he says, you were dead. Although we were physically alive, we were spiritually dead. We were dead men walking, and a spiritually dead person practices and lives according to the ways of this world. And it seems to be that Paul is making a statement about our condition. He's making a statement about who we are, about who we were. And he says, we're not bad because we do bad. We're not evil because we do evil. But he says, we do evil things because we are evil. See, rather than quote a number of verses, which I was thinking about doing, because there's plenty of scripture to tell us our real condition, our spiritual condition before Christ, which I think would be easy enough to do, to quote a number of different verses, but I'd like to just point to the daily news. It's easy for us to open up the newspaper to see the hateful and horrible world that's out there. Shootings, the situation in Iraq and Afghanistan and Myanmar in our own country, crime, injustice, racism, war. Just turn on the news and you will quickly realize that there are some horrible, horrible things happening. Whether we believe it's true or not about the nature of humankind, this one thing is certain. We are not what we could be. We are not what we were meant to be. The world isn't as it should be. Something is terribly wrong with the human race. No matter how much we boast of our technological achievements and advancements, the story of man's inhumanity to man, the way we treat each other, always grab the front page of every newspaper. Talk about the depravity of humankind. Jeremiah the prophet knew that very well. He said the heart is deceitful above all else and beyond cure. Who can understand it? There's something about the human condition. There's something about our ability to act in kindness and show grace and be loving and be compassionate. Our inability to do that, that always grabs the front page. You don't have to be a Christian, I don't think, to understand the depravity of humankind. My friends, the details change. Names change. The faces come and go. But the story always remains the same. 
Because this I know for sure. Something evil lurks inside the hearts of every person. No one is immune, no one is exempt, and no one is truly innocent. The world is a mess. We all know that. And the world is a mess because we ourselves are messed up. And I have soon come to realize that the mess of the world is not always out there, but it's in here. The problem is not always out there, it's in us. The world is bad because I think we are bad. The world is evil because evil lurks within us. I know, my friends, that sin is an unpopular subject. No one wants to hear a message about sin. But the Bible traces the issue of sin way back to the Old Testament, the very first humans of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And you may be thinking, what does Adam and Eve have to do with you and me? In some mysterious way, you were there, and in some mysterious way, I was there. When Adam sinned, I sinned. When Adam sinned, you and I sinned with him. This is the doctrine of original sin in its simplest form, the plainest form. It means that when Adam sinned, we sinned. When Adam disobeyed, we disobeyed. When Adam fell, we fell. When he died, we died. To say it another way, although you and I were not historically there in the garden, because we are descendants of Adam in his family tree, we suffer the consequences of what he did. To put it another way, Adam drove the bus off the cliff. Sin has affected every part of our being. Our mind, our emotions, our will, our intellects, our moral reasoning, our decision-making, our words, our deeds, everything. It's affected everything. Why is it so often that when we commit some, some heinous crime, it's, it's forgivable, and it should be forgivable, but when others do it, it isn't. It isn't. What is sin? It's in any violation of God's righteous character. Anything we say or do or think or imagine or plan that does not meet God, meets God's perfect standard of righteousness. The Bible uses many words to describe sin. Sin is missing the mark, means uh, ignoring or violating the standard God has laid out in the word. Sin is lawlessness. It means uh, violating, again, what uh, he has said to be true. Sin is transgression, the idea of going beyond the limits of what, had, what God has said to be good and proper, going beyond the boundaries of, of uh, what he's told us would give fullness of life and saying maybe there's more out there. Sin sometimes is translated iniquity in the scriptures, a strong word that means deliberately, 
deliberately and intentionally doing something that goes against deliberately choosing to do wrong. Knowing what you know to be right and doing the opposite. Paul has this fascinating uh, section in the book of Romans, and I think it's uh, chapter, uh, I think it's chapter 7. You can look it up. But there's this beautiful section where, where Paul is, is struggling with uh, himself. The right, I know I ought to do, I don't do it. And the thing that I shouldn't do, I do it. Which wages war against my soul. Sin is deviation from the standard. It describes a, a crookedness of the soul that results in a life full of twisted choices and evil deeds and, and broken relationships. And again, the Bible uses all sorts of words to describe the same thing. A violation of a perfection, a perfection, uh, a perfect standard which God sets in how we are to relate to Him and how we are to relate to one another. One commentator, E.K. Simpson, he writes this. He says, there are three outstanding schools of moral pathology traceable throughout the centuries. Pelagianism asserts the convalescence of human nature. Man merely needs teaching. All we need is education. Or semi-Pelagialism amidst his ill health, but affirms that the symptoms will yield to proper treatment, to a course of tonic drugs and a scrupulous regimen, says that with the right drugs, we can, we can cure ills. But biblical Christianity probes the patient to the quick. Its searching diagnosis pronounces that mortification has set in and that nothing less than infusion of fresh lifeblood can work a cure. Let me keep on reading. Nostrums and palliatives aggravate rather than allay the disease. Sin is an organic epidemical malady, a slow devitalizing poison issuing in moral necrosis, not a stage of arrested or incomplete development, but a, speed, a seed plot of impending ruin. In other words, if we don't understand any of that, in other words, he says, you're dead. And if you're dead, the only cure is new life. My friends, the person who does not know Jesus is not merely sick. He's dead. He does not need, in medical terms, even a resuscitation. He needs a resurrection. And the irony, I think, in all of this is that one does not know that they are dead until they have been made alive. To quote from a, one of my favorite commentators, a former professor of mine in seminary, he says, lost men, blinded and deceived by Satan, think they are really living and living it up when in reality they are dead. They think that by living in sin, they are enjoying life to the fullest, but they are not. They suppose they are free, subject to no one, when they are in reality enslaved. We are subject to the wrath of God. Forget grace. Imagine wrath. 
You want fairness? Here it is. We're getting what we deserve. We are getting what we deserve. And then all of a sudden, all of a sudden out of nowhere, it seems, after you've heard the bad news and all that's wrong with you and me, after we've read the the dismay and the disappointment of who, of who you and I truly are. Paul uses these two fantastic words to describe a new reality. In verse 4, it says, but... God. But God. Two words that changes the scenario altogether. Two words that change the outcome and our hope of a, of a future. But God. All that he said in verse 1 through 3, they are true these are not just false things. These are true things about where we were headed before we met Christ. And then in verse 4, it, it completely changes the outcome of the whole story, of the whole narrative, of the whole gospel power at work. But God, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show us the, and again, I love these words, immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And just in case you forget, and this, not your own doing, it is a gift of God. Amen? Amen. Not a result of work so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. But God, God's work in us, you see, if the first three verses tell us about sin's work in us, then verses 4 through 9 is the good news of the gospel. It's the, uh, it's the hope of the gospel. You see, verses 1 through 3 serves as the backdrop. And again, again, the, the power and the immeasurable riches of God's grace do not shine like it does if you do not have the backdrop of the wrath of God. Again, when you think about the riches of God's grace, the immeasurable riches of God's grace, it does not make sense unless you know where you were headed. You see, unless the backdrop of a dark, dark reality, the light of Jesus Christ cannot shine that brightly, 
we understand the, the, the significance and the power of the gospel here when, when Paul uses the words, but God, but God being rich in mercy. And when you read through this section, again, it ties together really well with the first chapter. Again, it's this idea of being chosen by God, that God would elect us and choose us and predestine us to be sons and daughters of God, that He would choose us, that it would not be something that we do, but something that God does for us, but God being rich in mercy. Because of the great love with which he has loved us. It's what God does in us. It's God's work in us. A stark contrast to the previous one we studied in verses 1 through 3. Death, now life. Hell, now heaven. Bondage, now freedom. Pessimism, now optimism. The backdrop that tells us, again, it's the backdrop of God's wrath that allows us the riches, the riches of God's grace to shine so brightly what He does for us. What good is a gift if it's deserved? What good is a gift if it's already deserved? How does heaven make sense? How does heaven make sense? I'm going to skip that. I, I need to sort it out through my head first. The Bible never says, hey, because you did great. But it contrasts our former life by saying, because of his great love. My friends, it's his work from beginning to end. That's how great our God really is. And it's because of this love in the form of amazing grace that life is made possible to those who would believe in his name. Because of this love, motivated by this love, he made us alive, raised us up, and seated us with him. This is the scope of his blessing. Now, we are fully alive. Salvation is a gift. He has given us grace unmerited, one that we could never earn, one that we did not deserve. The wonder of His love. A few years ago, actually I think it was more than a few years ago, my wife and I went to go see uh, Les Mis. And you may know the, the storyline from that particular play. But again, Jean Valjean, a French prisoner, sentenced to 19-year term for hard labor for the crime of stealing bread. After 19 years, he had earned his release, and convicts in those days had to carry identity cards that others would know of uh, past criminal acts. No innkeeper would let a dangerous felon sp spend the night, and so four days he wanders the streets looking for a place to stay until finally a kind bishop welcomes him in, him in and has mercy on him and lets him stay. That night, Jean Valjean lays still in an uncomfortable bed until the bishop and his sister have fallen asleep. 
Jean Valjean rises from his bed, rummages through the cupboards for the family silver, and creeps off into the darkness. The next morning, three policemen knock on the bishop's door with Valjean in custody. They had caught the convict in flight with the stolen silver and were ready to put the scoundrel in chains for the rest of his life. And the bishop responds in a way that not even Jean Valjean expects. He says, so here you are. I'm delighted to see you. Had you forgotten that I had given you the candlesticks as well? They're silver like the rest and worth a good 200 francs. Did you forget to take them? And Jean Valjean's eyes had widened. He, had now a, he was now staring at the old man with an expression no words can convey. Valjean was a thief. The bishop had assured the policeman, this silver was my gift to him. My friends, that's grace. The free gift of God. The same grace that Jesus Christ displayed on the cross Although he had committed no wrong, was hung that, on that old rugged cross to die for our sins. That's grace. Grace is receiving what you do not deserve. And I love that. Such a beautiful description of the gift that you and I possess. The New Living Translation reads it this way, God saved you by his special favor when you believed, and you cannot take credit for this. It is a gift of God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can ever boast about it.